So, in case it wasn't obvious, I just want to clarify uh, something, make something clear about uh, what we were talking about earlier. So this, if you like, spectrum, what I was calling a spectrum of... uh, Priorities of what's pro, uh, what's prioritized in in one's conception, attitude, orientation, intention for the path, the aim, the goal of of practice. Um, on the one hand, whether beauty and sacredness and soul making are really, genuinely at the forefront, or on the other hand, um, freedom, healing etc. for the self. Um, so there's a spectrum there. And it, um, just to really uh, m- make clear something uh, I was assuming, but just to b- draw it out, um, of course, the, where where we are, where a person is on that spectrum at any time is, is going to vary, uh, dependent on all kinds of conditions. It's not a static thing. Um, so sometimes even if, generally speaking, um, on the whole, the, the priority is um, the, the, the sense of sake opening and, and deepening and widening the sense of sacredness. Um, there will, of course, arise uh, moments and times and situations in our life where actually what we really need is some relief from suffering, some insight or some approach or some cultivation that opens up a situation from the con- contraction uh, that that we've um, put around it, you know. So it, it's flexible. It moves, of course, um, not just in peri- long periods over time. You know, ten years ago I had this orientation. Now I have this orientation, whatever. But also, um, if you like, even within a day, you know, probably quite a few times. So just to clarify that. Well, let's. Um, Say a little more about these themes. Uh, <clears throat> the the why, why offer a tree like this, and the context and the bases. As I said, these are in, interwoven themes. Uh, just to say a little more, and in a way to preface all this with just a, what would you say, an admission. Um, someone or other, I can't remember who, said something like, "All philosophies." Uh, that anyone would state are actually confessions. So they're personal confessions, and I certainly recognize that if I'm offering uh, a set of teachings or an orientation or a sort of um, larger conceptual framework. Um, most often, um, it's uh, it's really just, you know, implicit in that is revealing... Um, my own orientation, inclination, where I've arrived at, but also my predisposition. Uh, And I've talked about this elsewhere, but so just to say all that before we even talk about context um, more. So, in terms of the context of uh, these teachings and the emphases um, that will be supporting in practice, the emphasis it will take in practice, in the practices uh, over the week. Um, partly just to see, in, in the context, partly, I feel, uh, and 
I guess I'm speaking for Catherine as well. Partly it's a response. In other words, this retreat, these teachings, and these ideas, these practices are partly a response to um, the situation around us. Not just the um, global environmental situation, but also the situation of ideas um, in, in the wider culture, but also in Dharma culture, or spiritual cultures, or psychological cultures. So it's partly a response to um, uh, dominant paradigms that often go unquestioned, which is partly why they... Um, what happens to a dominant paradigm. Uh, It might arise first, for example, with the Western Enlightenment and the uh, uh, scientific revolution as a question, but but over time, that paradigm itself, or those uh, perspectives and views, philosophies, just actually become entrenched, dogmatized, unquestioned, second nature, really. So it's partly a response to all that, to what's becoming crusted and solidified in the wider um, culture and also in spiritual cultures, what has become prevalent uh, and goes uh, often unquestioned um, and just simply taken as truth. So within that, there are different aspects, and one is um, that I turn and see realism everywhere, different kinds of realism everywhere, whether it's um, in terms of uh, like a sort of religious realism or naive religious fundamentalism or a secular realism, uh, including the realism that, that is um, really at the basis, uh, the unavoidable basis of, of secular Buddhism or the kind of realism that permeates most understanding of of dependent origination in terms of process and real <clears throat> real events real uh, aggregates real moments happening in time um, all the realisms that uh, again underpin and run through a lot of psychology nowadays or the, or across the whole spectrum of the kinds of psychology whether it's um, the kind of uh, you know, cognitive uh, behavioral psychology or the more psychodynamic or, or whatever, um, all of them so, so rare for uh, approaches, whether psychological or spiritual, um, to not be based on a kind of realism. And a, a lot of the work is wonderful in psychology, you know, and there's, for instance, um, a lot of work on ego psychology. It, it's great, but but there's a realism un- underlying that, and it's quite, quite different to um, have a non-realist basis. This is something I'm going to come back to um, shortly. To have emptiness um, as something basic to the path, meaning f- an understanding of emptiness forming the basis of the path. And even more than that, to have um, to entertain this idea, this conception that fantasy and image is primary, and included in fantasy and image is um, conceptual frameworks and ideas, and that all of this is primary in constituting, fabricating, creating what we then experience um, and perceive and uh, move in rather than that our experience is some kind of independently existing reality or the ideas that we have are are somehow real and true. Um, So these ideas, these non-realist ideas, are really quite rare and radical. 
um, in a, in a world or worlds where realism realisms of different kinds are uh, rampant, if you like. So, and even even more, um, very often people might hear about a non-realist basis, but it's actually very hard to stay in it. So it's like, yes, that's right, great, okay, I get it. But so often then, whether we're talking in the realm of psychology or psychotherapy or dharma um, or other spirituality, so often, um, unwittingly, there's a reintroduction of some kind of realism. Something or other gets reified, made real, assumed to be real. Um, and often without even recognizing it. So even though there might be some enthusiasm for this idea of a sort of non-realist, non-truth-claiming, truth-grasping basis for things, um, it's actually quite rare and difficult for a person to actually abide in that place uh, deeply. And I, you know, just picking up one area... Uh, of all that, or related to all that, um, I think, again, for myself, uh, Catherine would have to word this in her own way, but um, partly uh, I find myself, uh, along with others perhaps, responding to what someone coined the phrase aggressive secularism. And so you see that in public figures like Richard Dawkins and... uh, other people, but also within the Dharma. There's a kind of aggressive secularism um, that uh, comes from certain voices and certain positions within the Dharma. And uh, in a way, because of the aggression there uh, and because of the dominance of that force and the sort of um, way that it uh, takes hold in people's consciousness and takes hold of people's consciousness, um, it, it seems to demand a little bit or ask for a response to to balance it in a way, to open things out. So that kind of aggressive secularism actually seems to me to be very much akin, to, to be actually a form of religious fundamentalism. Now, obviously, secularists, secular Buddhists, etc., con- conceive of themselves as completely opposite to religious uh, fundamentalists. But there are two ways in which f- sometimes these these two, um, if you like, camps are are really very similar. So one is in relation to the word religious, and I've talked about this elsewhere. I'm not going to say too much about it now. But um, one of the things that's characteristic of a, if you like, a religious Outlook, a religious mindset and attitude in contradistinction to, say, um, an artistic one or a scientific one, is that the authority is um, sought and placed and assumed to be in the past. Um, so, again, you see this in secular Buddhism with the sort of emphasis on um, on the Pali Canon teachings and a sort of uh, claim of historical, uh, you know, objective historical accuracy there. Um, but in a way, there's something religious about that backwards placing or that placing of authority in the past, that assumption of authority in the past, as opposed to an opening out into the future um, that's characteristic of art and science in different ways. But secondly, uh, with regards to the word fundamentalism, there's a kind of 
if you like, fundamental, uh, fun- fundament, a basis, a ground, again, in real- realism, in, in a notion of truth, and in, in secular um, outlooks or approaches, that truth that goes unquestioned, that it forms a fundament and a fundamentalism, an unquestioned and unquestionable assumption or basis for everything. All, all the rest of the teachings are, are, are based on this assumption of truth that's a kind of existentialist truth. This is our existential predicament. Um, this is what it is. This is undeniable fact of, of our ex- or the facts of our existence. And wrapped up in that is usually a kind of what's called philosophical um, physicalism or materialism. The assumption that um, as we talked about before, matter is primary. Matter is the only reality. Things, um, consciousness, etc., human beings, apparent selves emerge out of matter, out of the complex um, organization of, of matter over time and evolution. But essentially, what's real is is the physical as conceived uh, according to classical mechanical science, um, Newtonian science, etc. This existential and philosoph- uh, physicalist truths that form a fundamentalism. These are unquestioned. They are the bedrock of this. And together, there's a kind of, uh, with this backwards authority, this religious attitude, uh, there is a kind of religious fundamentalism. And in some instances, it uh, mirrors, uh, replicates the kind of uh, militant religious fundamentalism that we see in, you know, around the world today. Um, Because we actually hear uh, this uh, or, or witness uh, a kind of wish to expel or stamp out um, views that don't fall in uh, to that uh, to that uh, mold. Uh, op- opposite views, opposite sensibilities, and to me that's questionable. That's really not okay. You know what's going on there? That's very characteristic um, of notions of heresy and uh, all kinds of abuse that we've seen in history. Um, taking place under the auspices and, and the aegis of, of religion, now taking place under the auspices of secularism. So I would much prefer a plurality, uh, a real range of um, attitudes and approaches and sensibilities, because there's a range in what where human beings, what they need. And there's a range in souls and what resonates and what is soul-making for different souls. Um, and so for me, it's very important to keep that range and that plurality and any idea of stamping out this or that teaching or expelling it. Or um, And I hate to have to share this with you, but if you know, if you're behind the scenes with the politics of retreat centers and, and that kind of thing, not just here, but around the world, you know, there's probably more of this that goes on than than you guys might be happy to hear about. Um, so, you know, can there be, rather than, rather than that, can there be a plurality, an openness, recognizing the diversity and the diverse needs of souls and perspectives and sensibilities there? Uh, so I also talked about realisms in in psychology and psychotherapies and and the assumptions there i think we we will both catherine and i will return to that um whole area um repeatedly as the retreat goes on because it asks of us 
uh, all, I think, today, um, quite a lot of sensitivity, and, and we want to present a kind of balanced view of, of all that. So we'll return to that, um, this whole question of realism in, in, in psychology later. Um, <clears throat> again, part of this idea of these teachings, or this thrust of teachings, this direction, this opening of these teachings, um, as response, partly as a response to what we could call disenchantment. So the emphasis on re-enchantment is, if you like, in response to um, disenchantment. And disenchantment itself, again, is a word that means different things to different people. It's defined in different ways, and there are different kinds of disenchantment. But w- w- one kind of disenchantment, and I, I would actually agree with this, if if you like, runs through the Pali canon, um, because, I'm pretty sure I've talked about this in other talks, so I'm not going to labour it, but um, the Pali canon actually presents a, a transcendent thrust in its teaching. It, it, um, the movement there is uh, not to be reborn in this world, that's the final goal. Um, there's a kind of, of course, a... Uh, turn away from sensuality with that, turn away from this world as anything that's really that um, deeply attractive or um, sacred. Nowadays, that um, a reading of the Pali Canon is really not very popular um, because the whole area of the transcendent, also because of secular takes, is, is out of bounds. So we're left with nothing but this world. So we have to, there's a kind of, not we, but there is a kind of movement to somehow twist, if you like, the message of the Pali Canon into some kind of um, life-affirming or world-affirming or sense-this-affirming um, uh, um, uh, teaching, which actually it's pretty hard to do um, if you're really o- openly reading the Pali Canon. Um, it's hard to justify that kind of reading, but that's become, if you like, the prevalent reading in a lot of circles. So there is a kind of strange tension between um, disenchantment of certain kind and enchantment that runs through the Dharma, but even more than that, in the wider culture, which obviously knows nothing about the Pali Canon, um, or is not really exposed to the Pali Canon, um, there's a kind of the disenchantment of modernism. And disenchantment was actually a, a phrase that was first used, I think, by uh, Max Weber, the sociologist, a uh, hundred years ago even, perhaps, I can't remember. And what does that mean? This is part, part, we've talked about this before. What does that mean? What's the disenchantment? It's this, um, partly it's this flatness, the, 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 the assumption of a one-dimensional cosmos, Purely matter, purely meaningless matter, random atoms ricocheting off each other, coming into combination through their physical forces and happening to build stuff for a time that can be quite complex and quite amazing, if you like, but then that just dissolves. Um, uh, nothing but this flatness, this one-dimensionality. Um, there's a disenchanting uh, that took place as that became the dominant way of perceiving, really not just conceiving, but perceiving the world um, over some centuries after the Western Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution um, on the back of uh, the, the kind of views more uh, 
sanctifying views uh, of of the cosmos that that were in place before that in in, in the Middle Ages, etc., in the West, um, not to mention other parts of the world. But um, there's a kind of disenchantment that comes with secular humanism to a certain extent of what the human being is and what the human being isn't. Again, we'll return to this uh, later. And scientific materialism, which I just mentioned. So there's a response to the disenchantment um, that is pervasive now. that's become a norm, so much so that we don't even often most people would not even recognize that they're living in a disenchanted universe because they have no recollection of an enchanted universe. Um, but it's important to say with all this that certainly I, 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 I don't think I'm speaking to Catherine as well, I, we're not anti-science here. I mean, I, I have a deep interest in, in science and, and especially um, physics and modern physics as, as much as I can understand it and um, have a little history studying that but but um, there's a difference between um, being anti-science it's more like what what needs to get challenged is scientism this word that I used the other day um, which we could say is the kind of creeping outward overstepping of the boundaries of what science or what people believe that science can um, legitimately explain and um, take within its purview. Uh, what started in the scientific re- revolution as, as really a mode of approaching, a, a way of thinking, a way of approaching um, experimental data and, and, and a sort of scientific method, if you like, um, slowly over time became uh, a truth, an unquestioned truth that um, there is nothing more than what can be explained by scientific materialism. These are actual realities and truths that we're talking about and, and they will eventually be um, able to uh, encompass and explain the whole of existence, the whole of our experience, etc., etc. Um, so it's this scientism that actually is part of a, if you like, a kind of disenchantment. Although again, we can call, if you recall from the first talk, it's like this idea of a cultural enchantment, which, which, of which scientism is uh, one example. But the, the, again, the context of the retreat is partly in response to this creep of scientism. And again, in, 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 in uh, I was say Dharma culture, but it's not really only Dharma culture, it's um, wider than that in, in the culture of uh, psychological growth and, and, and healing modalities, the medical model, etc. that I talked about. Um, mindfulness uh, in, in all that is, is often... Um, presented, if you like, with what I would call an underlying metaphysics of disenchantment, an underlying metaphysics of non-enchantment in in the way that we're using it, either because it's presented more and more rarely these days in the sort of classical Pali canon uh, um, thrust of disenchantment, of transcendence, um, either that kind of disenchantment or... um, or there's a kind of, if you could, in, the, in the more popular versions of, of the way, say, some insight meditation or mindfulness is taught, there's a kind of limited enchantment. Um, 
for example, what gets enchanted is the whole idea of the moment and living in the now, and um, or, or nature to a certain extent. And I've talked about all this before. I'm not going to repeat it here. But but again, to notice that within those, why those enchantments are limited um, is because they are often actually assuming a flat cosmos. Um, and there also there's the assumption of, of of realism wrapped up in that. So the in in different ways the moment is real. This this experience is real. This uh, these atomic um, uh, you know, units of perception or, or consciousness or factors of mind are real. The time is real. Um, also, the kind of physicalism that's or one-dimensionality of the view of nature. That it's all—it's all based on a kind of flat cosmos um, uh, assumed to be real. So, from a realist conceptual framework. And again, part of this, part of the response, and part of the uh, contra contrast I, I want to, to draw out is what happens when we take emptiness as a radical basis for our path. An understanding of emptiness as a radical basis. And I, I said I wouldn't repeat too much of what I've talked about before, but, but this one is so crucial and so um, seemingly hard for people to really grasp um, what it really implies to do that, or what's really involved in that, and why it's such a radical... Um, radically different uh, basis and approach to the Dharma. Um, so, radical actually means uh, for, from the word radix, um, which means root. So the whole root, the whole basis, is is really different. Uh, nowadays, that word radical just gets used much too easily, um, but uh, it kind of becomes a little meaningless, if you like. But really, we're talking about a very different basis. So the idea, um, uh, as I said, of, of the possibility of um, placing ways of looking, the notion of different ways of looking, and the different possible ways of looking, all the different possible ways of looking, and the notion of, of, of the exploration of a fabrication of perception, those two notions, uh, interrelated notions, putting them really central, really integral to the whole unfolding of the path right from the beginning, and what is it then to have a non non realist assumption that we're not um, dealing with any concept that we have, any perception that we have, anything that we think we arrive at is not real or truth. And practice then becomes in in all that or with all that uh, as a basis. Practice becomes the um, uh, the practice of the exercise of flexibly entertaining different ways of looking, a whole range of skillful ways of looking, um, uh, which includes conceptual framework. So a conceptual framework or an idea is a part of a way of looking, and some of these are very, very subtle, and some of them are, are you know, broader, grander, more, more built up. But this whole... Um, flexibly entertaining and trying out different ways of looking to see their effects um, on freedom, their effects on the heart, on the perception, on the sense of beauty, 
on sense of meaning, on soul making. Um, all of this we can experiment and play with and because there is this flexibility. Because things are empty, we are free. All there is is ways of looking and we are free to engage different ways of looking. So, so this, this whole idea of ways of looking, the fabrication of perception, it forms both the start of the starting uh, kind of working basis of a path and also the end. The deeper and deeper we go, you see, all we're left with is ways of looking. Ways of looking are empty too. Um, but there's something that legitimizes it right from the beginning. And this, as I said, uh, is radical and it's a big deal. So all Dharma concepts, whatever it is, aggregates or not-self or impermanence or whatever, none of them are truths or realities. There's no Dharma concept that really is a truth in that sense um, or reality. But all of them, all Dharma concepts, big ones and little ones, um, are, are, if you like, translatable to ways of looking or, or concepts embedded in ways of looking that become available to us um, with with skill in practice. So we then engage them, but they're not truths. So this is a this is a as I said a big deal, is a radical um, a radical regrounding, if you like, of of what the path is and what it's based on and what it involves. Um, and it has all kinds of massive implications in the way it opens up possibilities and uh, uh, for for practice and for understanding. You know, one of the reasons, perhaps, why <coughs> it's difficult uh, for many people nowadays in in Dharma circles and and and, and wider circles. Uh, mindfulness circles, etc., to really recognize um, the significance, the the radicality, or what a big deal this uh, placing of emptiness, of ideas, of ways of looking and fabrication uh, in their fullness, those ideas in their fullness, placing them at the, really at the basis of the path and the conception and forming a path, letting a path form around those conceptions, based on those conceptions, shot through with those conceptions and oriented um, uh, according to those conceptions. One of the reasons that's so difficult is because uh, there's so much um, emphasis and rhetoric and assumption on uh, on, on a reality uh, that... Uh, can be arrived at through mindfulness, through bare attention, etc., that permeates um, perhaps a, a, a lot, if not most, insight meditation um, teachings and approaches, and also, of course, mindfulness teachings and approaches. And that, to, together with that, with that, uh, what makes it difficult is that the ideas of fabricating of what is fabricated and seeing through the fabrication of certain um, ideas or states or thoughts or whatever, uh, seeing them as fabrications, that idea is already there, as is the idea, um, uh, you know, comes up from time to time that, yeah, we can look at things in different ways. There are different ways of looking at 
uh, an experience or, or whatever it is that's happening. But underneath all that, underneath um, those sort of relatively limited teachings of fabrication and, and um, the acknowledgement of the possibility of different ways of looking, underneath that, um, as I said, there's this idea that mindfulness or bare attention will reveal what is unfabricated. The experience in the moment revealed barely, nakedly, as it is. Um, so the word unfabricated is often not used. It's used occasionally, but if it's used, it means um, something like this experience just as it is, or this bare actuality of the breeze on the cheek or the thought as the thought or whatever. So that in that, uh, as I said, the, the, the whole teaching of fabrication of perception is grossly limited um, and uh, there's a limit on the exploration of just how much we can let go of fabrication and um, move, uh, if you like, unfabricate perception more and more. So underneath all 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 this uh, teachings about mindfulness, bare attention, um, typically the way insight meditation is taught, is some kind of assumption of a reality um, that we can um, uh, meet, find out that that, that uh, is sort of life as it actually is, experience as it actually is. Uh, but there's not this understanding that. Um, uh, there is no reality independent of the way of looking. So yes, sure, we can look at things differently at different times to a certain extent, but underneath that, there's a reality. There's a way things really are, which, yeah, we can look a little bit different, but the whole teaching of ways of looking has, uh, again, has a, has a very limited depth because underneath the teaching or a mentioning occasionally of different ways of looking at things or that, that possibility, there's, there's an idea um, that there is an actual independent reality. So what I would like to say is, um, contrary to that, uh, the, 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 uh, all we have are ways of looking. They're empty too. There's no reality independent of the way of looking. There's no objective, inherently existent reality. Um, and the scope for unfabricating perception, for moving up and down on this spectrum of fabricating and unfabricating, is, uh, if you like, uh, complete. It goes into total cessation of um, any experience of subject, object, space, time, thing, all of that. So there is not underneath uh, uh, this assumption, uh, this this being he held onto of of reality or bare attention being able to to expose, to reveal, to meet reality. So typically, people hear these teachings about um, ways of looking and fabrication. It just doesn't have the impact. It's like, yeah, so what? Uh, it just goes in one ear and out the other, or over the head, or, or whatever. Um, because being with reality or bare attention or whatever is, is held onto as really the main thing. So that teachings about ways of looking or m mentioning the flexibility of that is just heard as a sort of, 
Yeah, okay, big deal. It's a small occasional supplement. As I said, what I would um, really want to um, give a different ground to the to the Dharma, ground of groundlessness, a basis in emptiness, in this fullness of understanding and then the comprehensiveness and thoroughness of the understanding of the ideas of ways of looking and fabrication. So that there is nothing hiding in there about this bare actuality of the moment or, or meeting things as, as, as they are, etc. and all that. So quite uh, different. That, that maybe said, uh, apart from the fact that it's emptiness is sometimes scary to people, um, these uh, the prevalence and the sort of ways these ideas have uh, sedimented in Dharma culture and in the consciousness, obviously of practitioners, etc., um, means that they're there and they're operating. And what is heard uh, that might actually be, uh, if you like deeper or wider or different than that actually tends not to get hurt because it just bumps into that uh, those sedimented ideas. And as I said before, it's not easy to stay in that uh, in that n- notion of uh, in non of non-realism. So you know um, what's quite popular these days is replacing the word truth in the Four Noble Truths with the word tasks. Um, and that's good in, in a way. It's kind of o- obvious that they, they are tasks, but um, but still, you know what happens there is um, at one level um, in recent years that so people get very nervous with the word truth, um, and so they don't like it. They feel a bit oppressed by it. So there's a kind of a kind of you know small superficial liberation in jettisoning that word truth, and it feels good. Um, but really, as I said before, what's uh, okay? So one's not using the word truth, but still underpinning that. Um, even if I've replaced it with another word, um, the shift is really nominal. Literally, it's just in, in terms of a word has shift because underpinning all that is a belief in uh, kind of existential, so-called existential truths, the truth of our so-called, the so-called truth of our existential situation, and usually a kind of um, philosophy, unspoken, unartic, well, rather unthought about, unquestioned philosophy of, of physicalism involved in that. So the shift is is uh, is purely superficial there, or often. So how do we even, um, you know, for some people, what enables this shift of basis to having, really having, Emptiness and deep understanding of emptiness and dependent arising as as a as a basis of the path. I mean, well, curiously, one is un- the more one understands emptiness, the more it even makes sense and uh, to have emptiness as as a basis. So much so that it's almost like one can't really take seriously an approach that claims some kind of um, realism or truth explicitly or implicitly. So I I. I just saying personally, I can't really take anything seriously that doesn't um, that is is based on some kind of r- realism that's u- usually hidden there. So for some people, um, that approach, curiously, of putting emptiness uh, at the fundament of the path will actually come once they understand emptiness more deeply. For others, it might come through certain uh, more modern philosophers, and really probably starting with Nietzsche, very you know 
amazingly insightful, radical thinker, and since then lots of other philosophers in the Western tradition open up this whole question of truth, kind of deconstruct um, the the assumptions of truth and reality uh, uh, that, that we've had. Um, so it might be that that helps with people. It might be for some. I mean, it actually comes through a, a, a deep understanding of, of modern physics. Um, or for others, it's just that they they already are possessed of or have available to them, uh, if you like, what we what we might call a more artistic or poetic sensibility, and their personality is already um, in contrast to some personalities that tend to be see things and think of things in quite concrete, literal terms. Some people are already, I would say, blessed with, with this kind of ability to um, not fixate consciously or, or um, in a way that articulates or, or in a more unconscious way on reality. And so there's, there's this kind of liberation that comes through an artistic sensibility. So any of those, whether it's understanding emptiness deeply, or modern science, or modern Western philosophy, or some aspects of modern Western philosophy, or this more poetic sensibility, these can liberate and make available for us um, the, the, a shift in, in, the, in the very basis and direction of, of what the path is. So it's not... Um, about truth or based on notions of truth, explicit or hidden, implicit. Um, but it's really more an art. And these kind of, um, from whatever direction one is liberated in that way, then we see, we feel that we are free to create. The whole thing becomes art, and I will come back and talk to this, uh, talk about that. But the kind of... Uh, realisms are are so prevalent sometimes they're hard to notice they're actually as i said hidden a little bit so so much in the languaging of mindfulness or dharma um one one person was talking about um mindfulness as uh, i think be, being with life as it presents itself meeting life as it presents itself and that kind of phrase or that kind of summary of what mindfulness is um, can sound very attractive. It also sounds completely innocuous um, and completely obvious to people who've been practicing mindfulness uh, a little bit. But what I want to say is, is it? Is it really? Is that really um, a what the Buddha meant? And b, um, more importantly, to, to my mind, is it really that innocuous? Or is there again a whole um, slew of assumptions, ontological assumptions, epistemological assumptions, all kinds of stuff wrapped up in in such an innocuous sounding phrase, such a simple and attractive sounding phrase. Again, I've talked about a lot of this before, but, um, you know, what does life mean? Such a buzzword these days, life. What do you mean when you say life? What's wrapped up in that? Um... It's, uh, again, a word that can easily um, have included in it all kinds of things that are taken for granted about what's real. Again, our existential situation, or the reality of matter, or uh, the flatness, whatever. So life as it presents, so yes, okay, what do you mean by life? What exactly do you mean by life? All kinds of things. I'm not going to labor that now. But even the phrase, as it presents itself, um, as it presents itself seems to suggest a kind of independence there. 
um, non-recognition that what um, is presented in perception or to perception or as perception um, doesn't so much present itself independently. Perception is not a uh, a kind of um, passive receiving of some kind of representation of reality or, or a reconstruction of some passive reconstruction, or not passive, but a, a kind of um, faithful reconstruction of, of, of some kind of reality, that we have to see um, that uh, what arises as perception, what is presented, if you like, or feels as if it's presented to the mind, is not independent, is a dependent arising, dependent on the ways of looking. And this, this um, not understanding that, not including that as, uh, as either an insight or a, or a mode of working, means actually that we're missing what I would say is the main point of classical dharma which exactly is understanding that. How perception is fabricated, as I said, dependent on the way of looking. Understanding the deep teaching of dependent arising and emptiness. So this is hard to understand, hard to see. I'm not even sure if I want to teach this, he said. Um, This is the thrust of the main point of what I would call classical dharma, Um, meaning dharma that doesn't include the imaginal, etc. So, Phrases like life as it presents itself um, tend to obscure the dependent arising um, or the arising of perceptions of or appearances, experiences dependent on the way of looking. So again, here, uh, this, this importance to me, this real importance, this necessity of questioning what is wrapped up in the views operating in this or that position or statement? This is what I call, uh, what I think the word means critique, as I said in, in the opening talk. Um, for instance, wrapped up in a phrase being present uh, or, or meeting life as it presents itself or whatever it was, um, um, is there a kind of um, assumption of modernist physicalism? these random atoms, or what matter really is, versus just the notion of appearance, which is a much more phenomenological uh, notion that leaves much more open, uh, much less assumed. We're dealing with appearance. We're not necessarily dealing with um, uh, what we might think matter is, according to a modernist physicalist view. There's a huge difference in... um, in those assumptions, in what opens up by those assumptions, and what's allowed by those assumptions, either, either way. And sometimes, actually, unfortunately, quite often, um, people write to me or, or they say something about um, emptiness, and they're relatively enthusiastic about it, and, they, and then they and then they say something about um, how congruent that is with. Um, understandings of how the brain works, etc. So, so that this um, possibility, this understanding of fabrication of perception, the possibility of different ways of looking, is reduced to a ground, and the ground is the brain, and the ground is the neurophysiology and the, um, the different neuronal um, mechanisms and processes happening in the brain. But again, it's um, we're back at physicalism. Emptiness does not stop, does not um, have a ground uh, or, or propose a ground in 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 the brain or in, in, in any kind of physicalist ground. 
So to um, somehow try and convert the teachings of emptiness and fabrication of perception and all, all that into um, uh, an equivalent that posits things in terms of explanations according to brain <clears throat> neurochemistry and neurophysiology and mechanisms is not, as far as I, I would say, a deep understanding of emptiness, leaving out a whole, um, a whole uh, range of territory there. But this physicalism, this tendency to do that kind of thing, is endemic in our culture. We're saturated in it. Our, the way we think and assume um, and perceive is, is, is saturated in, in that conception, that assumption, uh, and, and all of that. It's what sometimes modern philosophers call, is a sediment, is sedimented in our view. So much so that we don't, it's, it's become... Uh, something that's just kind of solidified and hard to see, hard to um, question, hard to have a different assumption, hard to even see that it's operating sometimes. As I said, different possibility, the understanding emptiness, more deeply probing, more deeply questioning with, with the emptiness um, practices, or modern physics and what quantum uh, physics, etc., has to has to say about the reality of so-called atoms and electrons and uh, the con- those constituents, or modern Western philosophy questioning the whole ideas of physicalism. That uh, whether it's in continental philosophy or Anglo-American traditions, if we talk about that, um, from both from both sides uh, of the Western modern Western philosophical tradition, that the whole notion of materialism and, and physicalism is, is really being, uh, has been for quite a while, um, deconstructed, pulled apart. So I would say, and I think this is extremely important, the brain and the mind and the processes of the mind are all empty. All of them are empty. And the matter that makes up the brain and the, the neurons and the atoms and the subatomic particles, all empty. So the emptiness really means a groundlessness. We are not positing or assuming a ground in physica- in, in uh, notions of matter, uh, subatomic uh, particles, subatomic as something real. You know, wrapped up in all this, or, or just another way of saying all this, is um, is is really about questioning. You know, really about questioning. And uh, for me, that's so, so key, so much the lifeblood of practice, uh, or, or one of the uh, things that gives uh, zest and vitality and thrust and, and openness to practice. Without, without a kind of radical questioning, our, our practice is actually quite narrow and quite circumscribed in the range that it can uh, open to. So very often, you know, uh, someone might hear about a retreat like this or these kind of teachings, and 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 of course, very often, and as I said, you'll even get it here, um, enchantment is contrasted with the real, um, so it's not real, and um, uh, you know, we're off with the fairies or, or or whatever, something like that, um, and what we what a person really wants is that. My life, my the reality of my life. I want meditation and mindfulness for my everyday life, etc. And that idea of mindfulness or meditation for everyday can can be very attractive. And one wonders, you know, why 
what's what's actually the attraction in a part of it is is goes back to this coping that people you know understandably are suffering and want to find ways to cope with what um most and most often bothers them which seems to be uh you know things at the level at which we're perceiving these are real they're a problem how do i how do i deal with that but one wonders too whether um the idea of mindfulness or meditation for everyday life, etc., it, it's somehow encapsulated in the title and the thrust of the teachings. There's a belief in and actually a reaffirmation and a support for um, uh, habitual uh, perceptions and conceptions of what reality is. And this is much uh, safer, um, if you like, because... Um, Questioning deeply notions and perceptions of reality and habitual assumptions is is basically upsetting. It's 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 it's, uh, it's not necessarily peacemaking at first. You know, uh, challenging deeply such um, ingrained assumptions, such assumptions and perceptions and conceptions that everyone seems to agree on, um, and about what's real. So called ontological assumptions and what we can know, epistemological assumptions, cosmological, what, what the world is. This is this is not easy. So if you like, it's more attractive for um, to hear teachings that seem to reaffirm what we already know, what we already take to be real. And so there's there's this in in the in the both in Dharma culture and other spiritual cultures, if we even use the word spiritual. Um, which of course some of them don't. It's more about personal growth or whatever, however it's phrased, um, and and in the wider culture as well. You know that word secular. Um, one of its actually its root meaning is of this age, like of this age is what secular means from the Latin. Um, but to me, it's like what of this age should should mean is is the questioning of what is now outmolded out outmoded excuse me that's what it means to be of this age is to be uh, moving not just receiving um what's actually an old inheritance so the assumptions of classical mechanical science whether one is drawing on them in one's uh, exposition of secularism or teaching um or whether it's just through the neurophysiology, which seems very modern because it's current research, but it's still based on classical mechanical science. Um, or the, the and and, and the, the, uh, the assumption that we can have objective, independent um, understanding of anything. That's so much at the basis of the classical. Um, scientific method, which uh, started with the, with the scientific revolution and Western Enlightenment, but actually, what is it to really question these old inheritances of ours, these philosophical, um, usually unspoken, uh, or, or just tacitly assumed, tacitly born um, assumptions that we have, perceptions, conceptions, um, the questioning of them is what is current, not just the adoption of ideas that are actually hundreds of years old and have been surpassed um, in science, in philosophy, in, in, in dharma, in all kinds of things.
So the uh, German philosopher, I think he was German or Swiss German, I think, um, philosopher Hans Georg Gadamer, um, you know, this this um, voicing this recognition that you know the way we see our perspectives are partly the result of history, and we have to recognize that. So we're not getting some objective take on um, on anything, whether it's a wor- uh, a text or our uh, existential situation. Our views are products of history. We interpret again, whether it's a text. Um, so the Pali Canon text, or other Buddhist texts, or other religious texts, or our our, our life, um, the hermeneutics of that, the interpretation of that, is from a certain historical situation, as a result of conditioned by, and uh, by all that, um, and also has a certain horizon that's historically uh, conditioned and conditioned by what you know all kinds of other factors. But this. Um, the possibilities for interpretation, the hermeneutic possibilities, these evolve. So that's also not just a result of history, but it's part of history, and the whole thing can be dynamic. Interpretation is not... Um, uh, uh, we don't arrive at a truth of either this is, this is what the Buddha said, this is what he meant, and this is the truth, and anyone who doesn't agree with me is just simply wrong just simply deluded or whatever, or this, I can extract this, uh, or or, or excise this, um, let's say, so-called Vedantic overlay or whatever, or this uh, corruption of the text, you know, and arrive at the pristine actual truth, independent of any anything else. Um, This is not uh, a very mature understanding of what actually goes on in uh, in looking at old texts or in in looking at our existence ourselves and our lives the interpretation hermeneutics becomes actually inexhaustible so creative open so these are some of the ideas that this philosopher Gadamer um, uh, expounded and expanded upon um, but met many others in kind of postmodern philosophy etc etc and again the, these kind of um, <clears throat> questionings and seeing through uh, the, the assumptions of classical mechanical science, of the assumption of being able to have objective, independent understanding and perception of anything, these also can be approached by emptiness, as we said. Uh, Dharma understanding, if I go deeply enough, if I approach it in the right way, I have to set up my whole investigation into emptiness in the right way, otherwise that too will just reach a wall. And I can't go any further. So what is it, again, I know I'm harping on about this, but what is it to really, um, really, not just nominally, but really um, not have uh, notions of truth or reality, either explicitly or implicitly, um, girding the, our, our sense of uh, existence, but also the path? So what is it really to have a... And to jettison that, and really, um, if you like, to uh, to have a ground of groundlessness, to have a non-realism as as not just the basis, but permeating through the whole of the Dharma. And with all this, as I said, in 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 regard to the the contemporary context of all this, of our teachings, of our culture, again. 
the importance of questioning and, and you know what are the questions of our time. So it's easy to just receive um, old answers and act as if they're new, but uh, or, or assume that they're new. But actually, what are the questions of our time? What needs? Um, what is it time to question? Yeah, it's a big, big, uh, big deal, as I said. And again, uh, related to all this, if I. Uh, and we're talking partly about why. Why why offer such a retreat? Why is it important? Um, you know, I, I speak for myself, but I think uh, I, I know from Catherine also that, that, that it's um, she has found this as well, that since, uh, I speak from my experience, but, si- you know, since I've been talking about um, the imaginal, for instance, um, I've lost count of how many people have reported back to me that... Because of hearing these teachings, um, and because I, I, because they're hearing these teachings, that something was legitimized, that they were somehow given permission through hearing these teachings to play and to explore and to pick up concepts like divinity, God, angel, um, without rarefying them, that they were given. Uh, granted somehow permission um, and and certain to play to explore and certain concepts were uh, and perspectives were legitimized the whole use of of um, the imagination words like soul etc so this is uh, you know I I rejoice it really touches me when I hear that I'm I'm very glad that that kind of opening um, has happened. And I have a question again in relation to that. Where did the pressure come from, the authority, the imprisonment come from in the first place? That it was not legitimate, that there wasn't that position, permission. Where did that authority and imprisonment come from? Who imprisoned you? How? Where do we um, give authority? Where do we give up? Our authority to whom? How do we, how does that even happen? That somehow I can't entertain certain ideas which might be extremely fruitful, extremely uh, nourishing and fertile for the soul, and opening in all kinds of ways. And somehow something has gone on with authority, or authority figures, or something or other, and I'm not allowed. They're they're out of bounds. They're taboo. What's gone on there? How has that gone on, and why has it gone on? So this is a this to me is a real question. So partly off offering this uh, retreat to to give permission to legitimize to open up um, whole vistas and areas and, and vast areas for exploration, for play, for the fertility of the soul, for inclusion of. Um, Aspects and dimensions of beings that have somehow got um, amputated, rendered out of bounds, no entry. Do not enter. Do not. Uh, do not even think about using this. So there's there's a big, um, for me, a big a big uh, uh, desire to open up those territories because I just see how important they are, how necessary they are. And there's a question in that. 
Okay, so just to um, a few brief things. I said I would also just say a few a few things uh, just to finish about um, relating to the retreat, relating to these ideas and teachings. Um, so, yeah, how 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 do we hear and how do we frame and hold these ideas and these teachings? Um, and if I just share for myself, I notice. Um, that I feel quite sensitive and sometimes a bit reactive or I get a bit nervous when I hear certain ideas um, expressed, uh, let's say, in the New Age kind of language, where there's this sort of, there just seems to be um, this kind of too much realism, too much reification in it. And I get, yeah, I just... Me personally, it rubs it rubs me the wrong way. And I say I can't take it seriously. Wh- whether it's... Um, uh, kind of new, more new agey idea, or whether it's a more secular idea, it's something something really reacts to that in in me, um, and I get a bit nervous when I'm listening. Um, that's just me, me sharing uh, what what kind of doesn't work for me when I'm when I'm listening. Uh, so if someone is talking that way, or I'm reading something that way, I kind of have to. Um, work a little bit on how I'm listening to it so that I can actually take in what might be useful but um, not get tripped up by what makes me a little uneasy. And, you know, one thing here related to that is, is so, okay, and I've talked about this again before, but I'll, I'll it, it, it's so important that it's, it's worth repeating. So we have this um, emphasis on a deep understanding of e- emptiness and dependent arising um, on 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 the one hand, all perception, all experience uh, is empty. There's no um, truth in any of what what I perceive. No ultimate truth and uh, or conceptual framework, etc. On the one hand, real um, strong emphasis and basis in that. And if you like, on the other hand, what appears to be uh, in in opposition to that is this. Um, willingness to entertain certain conceptual frameworks or what we might call metaphysics um, and sometimes quite sort of platonic in, in the sense of these hierarchies of existence or things that are given reality etc so there seems to be a kind of um, opposition there uh, it can seem very much and in a way um, this kind of work of, of imaginal work and re-enchanting um, in meditation can seem like um, somehow walking a razor's edge between these two extremes is kind of um, what seems to be realist spiritual metaphysics on the one hand and um, kind of radical emptiness uh, and understanding of dependent origination on the other hand. So it can seem like one is really walking a tightrope or appear from the outside as really walking a tightrope or a razor's edge between those two. Um, but my experience is that um, the deeper I go into understanding emptiness, um, what looks like this tightrope balance, actually in this narrow, uh, as a razor's edge or tightrope, you get the image, some very narrow, sort of precarious balancing. I have to really keep in the middle between two falling off on either side. Um, actually, that what seems like a, a very difficult, narrow place of, of walking, of standing, of moving on, along this razor's edge or tightrope, 
tightrope. Actually, with, with practice, and the deeper I go into understanding, is not narrow at all. It's quite the opposite. Um, it actually uh, becomes a, a very wide and fertile field, um, allowing, um, so legitimizing, inviting a kind of infinitude of exploration. So that practice becomes, in, in this um, holding together of the understandings of, of the emptiness of all things, a radical, absolute emptiness of all things, complete, thorough emptiness, the holding of that with the um, willingness to enter into and entertain um, various conceptual frameworks and even metaphysical ones, etc. Um, with practice... The, the, the balance doesn't feel precarious at all or, or contrived, which from the outside, or maybe at first, it might seem as if it is. Um, but going back to this question about, you know, how, how really the question is for you, how, how, will, how will you hear these teachings? How will you frame and hold these ideas? So, as I said, I shared for me what makes me nervous sometimes. Um, and so just to say the encouragement to take care, to find a relationship with these ideas, with the practices, with the teachings that, that work for you. So that's one thing. A second thing related to that has to do with um, with listening in general or, or reading. Um, uh, and I know I've said this before, but again, it's so important to to say it. It seems to me that as human beings, um, we listen or read um, to teachings almost from inside of certain boxes, from certain conceptual structures that we've built up, um, that we understand or that we assume to be true or real. We listen to something new or we read something new from the perspective of what we already know. And, um, and sometimes in that, what happens is we just cut out and cut off and almost in some instances literally do not hear what is new what doesn't fit in to the box of uh, the boxes of our conceptual structures so you know this is maybe just part of the the way the human mind works um is is difficult sometimes you know because sometimes these boxes there, there are periods, maybe long periods in practice, where those boxes need to get consolidated, need to get built up. And so we need to hear just little bits that just patch this and that and make the structure more firm. Um, but there's a downside to all that, because sometimes I say we, don't, we simply do not hear what is new, what doesn't fit in the box, what's different, what stretches um, and opens, and sometimes breaks, uh, even breaks, shatters the, the box. So is it possible as we go through as we go through these teachings um, or you know other teachings that you come across or books that you read to actually listen uh, listen for the new to read on the lookout for what actually doesn't fit in your box this is difficult but just a kind of putting that out there recognition of the the difficulty of that but a kind of gentle encouragement to listen in a different way than what what is often habitual for us listening for what is new what doesn't fit into my box of what i already know uh again it's more challenging it's sometimes not so comfortable so that's one thing and a second thing to do with listening and reading um has to do with listening for the relevance 
of what's being said in any moment or, or the point that's being made. So just why I'm saying this is just a couple of um, examples that, that I've experienced teaching. So I remember uh, some years ago giving a talk and the, the bulk of the talk or some large part of it was actually about um, quantum physics and... and um, its relationship to uh, to emptiness and understanding of reality and perception and what that had to do with freedom, etc. Um, and I remember afterwards, one one uh, one person listening, uh, maybe it was a little afterwards, I can't remember, just um, sort of making somehow making the point that um, he he just thought that I was just going off about quantum physics because I was kind of interested in it and I just got lost in a tangent that had nothing to do with. Uh, with uh, anything really, or certainly not the Dharma, um, and I was I was actually surprised because I had perhaps assumed too easily that um, why it was relevant or what the connections were. Um, and uh, another instance is uh, t- teaching emptiness on on a long course, um, a couple of times in fact, uh, or maybe it was the first time, the second time I got a little bit wise to it. I can't remember, but. Um, and going through and explaining all this stuff about emptiness and realizing that a small three or four people, actually it was completely abstract for them because they just didn't see a connection with see, with um, realizing the emptiness of things of, of uh, and, and a reduction in suffering or freeing from suffering. So the whole thing just seemed like, um, for some people, it seemed like it was landing in the place of this is completely abstract philosophy. What's this got to do with suffering? And again, um, I realized, oh, I have to go back and actually connect things that um, to me and to some people seem com- completely um, obvious. And na- n- the relevance, the connection of um, I- ideas with, in this case, freedom from suffering um, n- needs to be made. So if you're, partly I'm, I'm suggesting, what is it to listen for the relevance? Um, and if something doesn't, uh, is not clear, ask. You know, ask, well, why, 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 why did you make that point? What exactly is the, what was the point of making that point? Or what was the point of that practice? Or um, do, do ask, because when, when we hear things and they don't, um, we don't understand their relevance. It's like their their power to transform or to open up possibilities is is uh, almost completely diminished. You know, it just just dissolves right there. And this is related to that. We we can also say something about listening. What I might call listening and reading structurally. So this is this is another way of saying something very similar. Because um, how often I hear from people, they were listening to a Dharma talk from this teacher or that teacher or whoever it was, and the person said, and I took one thing, and then they, they say some really half a phrase of what the teacher said in an hour, and it might be a turn towards what's difficult or something, um, which which is great, you know, they got that and it was important, but but it's almost like this a little bit myopic or over-microscopic focusing on some little detail, and we need to listen for details, we need to read for details, of course we do, but sometimes what happens is we, in in that, we're not listening or we're not reading for the big picture, for how things fit together. And oftentimes, or usually when we're not, um, and again, it's, it's difficult to hear the big picture if, if ideas are different, you know, and we're, we're not hearing those uh, new ideas. But oftentimes when we're not really 
listening or reading and and kind of seeing how 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 it all fits together how 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 the big picture forms the big sort of um if you like conceptual structure um then again what what we'll find in our practice and in our lives and in the way the dharma sort of develops for us is is actually kind of um because of that it, is a kind of limitation on the movement that's possible and the opening that's possible. So just, you know, I know I know this is not always easy in terms of the way people's minds, some people's minds work, etc. But but just a general, and not just for this retreat, but more, more generally in one's life, is like, is it possible to gently encourage um, what I'm calling a, a more st- structural kind of listening or reading um, of books or whatever, so that so that one really understands the relevance and how things fit together, the, bit, the bigger picture. So, just general things to mention about relating relating to the teachings. Um, we're going to talk more or say some things about relating to to the different practices um, uh, probably tomorrow. But um, but. Yeah, just more generally in terms of the teachings, and and one last thing uh, with that is, um, you know, teachings have to happen in in linear time, and they have to happen in chunks. We can't a sit here and download it all in you know one second, um, and uh, secondly, uh, if we were to sit it and just sit here and download it, so to speak, in um, you know, in one go, it would obviously be very long, and and everyone would, including ourselves, would fall asleep or get exhausted. Um, so, so teachings have to be presented inevitably in chunks in time. But on this retreat in particular, and it goes for other retreats as well, sometimes those chunks are not really separate. So, um, we're going to talk, for instance, about what does it mean to reenchant the self and other, reenchant the world, reenchant time, for instance. In other words, different areas of reenchantment or reenchanting um, the seeing or the the, sa- the the hearing or the tasting or the touching, the six senses. But actually, all these areas of reenchantment are um, are not separate at all. They're uh, if you like, mutually dependent. The enchantment is mutually dependent, and they're they're if you like enchanted together. The self, the world, the senses, the perception, the ideation, all of it um, uh, is is actually enchanted together. Um, but but we have to split things up to talk about them. So, you know, sometimes you'll be four or five days into the retreat, and you'll get a piece of something. You're like, oh, I didn't even wish you'd said that at the beginning. Um, or a piece at the beginning doesn't make sense until or fit, you know, till later. So just just a recognition of that. It's a limitation of um, you know of our existence in a way, um, of the way things uh, arise for us and need to be separated. Um, and also related to that, there's not really on this retreat a kind of so much of a linear movement. We start with this and dependent on that, um, we will go to something more advanced. Uh, it's not really uh, set up that way, unlike other retreats, um, with the exception, as we'll talk about tomorrow, about the energy body um, as that forming a, 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 a working basis for our practice. Okay? So a lot of stuff to bear in mind and um, hopefully to open things up and make, make things um, you know, fruitful and helpful for all of us. Okay?
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.